Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we're in Judges 9 tonight. Uh, flip in your Bibles there. We'll pick up where we left off. Actually, um, if we're going to pick up, we're going to start in the last two verses of chapter 8 because it kind of flows in, so I want to bring us back to where we were. Um, in context, Gideon in chapter 6 through 8 had just defeated the Midianites and he kept them on the run. Uh, but then he gets rich. He takes lots of wives. Uh, he prides himself as a kind of ruler, but he doesn't go to calling himself a king. But he does give birth to a son through a servant girl. Um, and in verse 32, instantly there's a, a return to worshiping a god named Baal Bereth, the lord or the king of covenants. So uh, this is still in that context. Gideon's claim to be with God, but doesn't have integrity when things got easy for him. It was only in the struggle that he stood for God. But when it got nice and easy, he falls apart and, and really becomes a hypocrite. So one of those people, the things where you really want to celebrate Gideon from chapter 6 and 7, then you get to 8 and you're like, well, he can't really be a long-term hero. Like, he can't lift this guy up and say, what an example. So, so far in Judges, and I think this is an important chapter for context. So far in Judges... The tribes of Israel have acted fairly independently. Like Othniel and Joshua, Israel was moving as a, a bigger group. But as we've gotten into Judges, we get lesser and lesser groups standing for the name of God. And smaller and smaller groups. So then we get to this weird chapter 9. How many of you read ahead this week? I love you too. That's great. Um, this is one of those weeks where it would be handy if you read ahead because this is a tricky chapter. It really is. Um, but we have the children of God acting as tribes instead of as the, the nation of Israel. And God's plan from Genesis all the way through is that the children of God respond directly to God. And there isn't tribes and there aren't nations like this sort of thing. Israel is unique in that and you can take Israel and set them aside because there's a whole set of prophecies where Israel is going to carry the prophecies of Jesus forward. But the idea for God has always been that people act in unity and they follow God directly. The judges has not shown that at all. There's been like a dismantling of that unity from the time of Joshua throughout the book. So we're in that progression and then in verse 34, at the end of chapter 8, it says, Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Zerubbabel, which is Gideon's nickname, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So chronologically, if you look at like a timestamp of the era of the judges, we are smack dab in the middle of that era. We've got a lot of judges to go. But we're chronologically right in the middle, and you've got this kind of midway point um, where we get Abimelech in chapter 9. Um, but don't write down Abimelech as the judge. 
and I'll give you reasons for a while, but it's the first name that's said in the chapter. So you can always tell when you're dealing with bad Bible research, when you pull up their list of the judges and they include Abimelech in the list, they, like Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a place to go for your Bible scholarship because they, they clearly didn't read the chapter, but they read the first two words, then Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech's not a judge, and we'll find that out here in a soon. But Abimelech, the son of Zerubbabel, Gideon, went to Shechem. Uh, so uh, I won't go this. We'll stop on Abimelech, all right? The name means my father is king, so clearly he's naming his child in a weird way, given that he said he wasn't a king. And the word Shechem, we should recognize Shechem. If we've gone through the whole Bible so far, Shechem should stand out as a significant place. It's not an accidental location here. Um, and, and it is where in Genesis 20, uh, we had an Abimelech that took Sarah's wife from Abraham. You remember that story? So the word Abimelech, in, in the Hebrew, there isn't really a translation. It could be that Abimelech simply a title, like a nickname that Gideon gave to his kid, my little prince, or something like that. Because Abimelech as a name or a title has shown up before in the Bible, and it wasn't like the person's name. It was more like their authority position that they had. So growing up being called a little prince and then not being in a country that has a king or a monarchy, that can be an odd situation. Anyways, then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, um, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and all the family of the house of his mother, saying, Please speak in the hearing of the men. Of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Zerubbabel reign over you, or that the one reigns over you? Remember, I'm one of your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. And they said, He's our brother. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, 70 sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone from the temple of Baal Bareth. Okay, I don't need to go too much further to say Abimelech's not a judge of God, right? You're getting that from the intro here? So it's almost like an interlude in the middle of the book of Judges. Here's all these people that kind of took a stand for the kingdom. And then you got this Abimelech who's doing like the opposite. Um, but all of God's word is inspired. It's all here for our learning and our instruction. And we're supposed to pick something up from this. So a few things. When it says in verse 2, all the men of Shechem, that word there isn't like your Jewish word for men. So that was a weird one that stood out. Um, it, it's actually like Baalites is the word. So they are all the followers of Baal. So it's not dealing with the whole city of Shechem. It's dealing with um, these people that were clearly following another god. We get some clues here where he doesn't go to his, all of his brothers. He goes to the brothers of his mother. So you got to go back to the last chapter on his mother, um, who was a servant girl that Gideon uh, had children with. So not exactly a good situation. An example of where polygamy goes bad uh, is that now these kids are against these kids, and there's a faction or a division that shows up when that happens. Um, and he goes to these Canaanite brothers and sisters. The servant girl was likely a Baal worshiper. And he goes to Shechem and meets all the worshipers of Baal, the men of Shechem. Um, I don't know why they didn't just translate that, the worshipers of Baal. Um, but he goes back and he says, look, I'm one of you. I'm half you. 
So why don't we just connect and, and touch base? Um, don't you see how much like you I am? And this is going to come back to bite them in a little bit. Um, welcome. And, uh, and his mother's brothers, of course, say, well, he's our brother in verse 3. He's our pal. He's our friend. So this is a great chapter in how the world operates. And when we look at Canaanites in the Old Testament, they're often an image or a picture of sin. And when we look at how people relate or connect to them, we see the same thing. So you've got Abimelech. He's a murderer, verse 5. He kills 70 of his own brothers on one stone in the temple of Baal Bereth. I think they bring up one stone here, and we'll see at the end of the chapter why there's perfect symmetry to this story. Like, it is a story that we are supposed to know. But the idea that he kills 70 people on one stone is literally going to knock him in the head. So any action that requires partnering with servants of Baal is not probably of God's work. But we do this sometimes. And, and, and so I won't get too far into it. I think it's a good discussion for afterwards. We have people sometimes that say we need to partner with people that aren't serving the Lord in order to advance the cause of God. And it generally doesn't work. And this chapter gives us some insights on why it doesn't work. Um, but he does. He turns to them. They give him money out of the temple of Baal Bereth in, in verse 4. Don't miss that. So any initiative that takes the world's money to do God's work is probably not the work of God. So it just keeps coming, right? There's these things where it's everything's not how God would have this. So any action that's going to connect with or use the money for or partner with, it's, he's thinking he's doing something, but he's not really being called by God. There's nothing in the first two paragraphs that says God talked to him, God called him, God wanted to raise him up to leadership. So he's promoting himself to leadership. And then, of course, last but not least in verse 5, he murders to get there. He has to step on others in order to advance himself. And if you don't know what this looks like outside of actual killing, like in the modern world, just go to any higher ed institution and watch grad students for a while. Like they will, they will literally go after each other and in vicious ways to try to get themselves promoted in the eyes of their, of their advisor. I mean, it happens a lot. So we see this kind of thing happen. Um, this idea of Bereth seems to be the latest fad. It's the God the Canaanites are worshiping now. It's not exactly the God that the Israelites should be paying attention to. So the Baali, the, she, the men of Shechem, the worshipers of Baal. And then you get this phrase, the worthless and reckless men. Rake and pakaz in the Hebrew. Rake and pakaz, interesting. Again, this is weird. weird. The words here are really intentional because they're not normal words that are in this story. The rake, the, the, what we have, at least in my Bible, it's translated worthless, uh, means vain or empty. And it's the same word that gets used when it talks about idol worship. The vain and empty worshipers become vain and empty people because there's nothing there. There's no heart. And the word reckless has a real connotation in English. In the, in the Hebrew, it means frothy or bubbly. Not the same connotation, at least for me. That doesn't really match up the same. But to be a vain frother or men that are both vain and frothing, means they're angry, but there's nothing underneath their anger. They're just angry people, right? So figuratively, you've got these people that live without substance or morals, and they're for sale. You can just buy these people. If you pay them enough, they'll do what you want them to do. And the only real people purpose here is killing his brothers. He's not doing anything else. So you think this guy's motivated entirely to just kill a bunch of brothers and stuff. And some of them are probably little. 
but he wants to get power. He wants that mantle that he thinks is out there. He's got the world helping him do it, and he's going to take over. But then you ask Abimelech, what's your plan? Abimelech doesn't have a plan. Like, there's nothing, because God hasn't told him to do anything. So he doesn't have a plan. He just literally always sees that he wants power. And then you get, but Jotham. If you want to write down on your list of judges, I think Jotham's the judge in this chapter. So, but Jotham, the youngest son of Zerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, which is another name for Shechem, it means house of fortifications, a big tower of some sort. And they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was Shechem. Don't just read over that. Like there's tons at that location. Shechem is where um, Jacob bought land in Genesis 33. Uh, It is where Joseph's bones are buried. Uh, And it is where Joshua said to the Israelites, who do you choose this day? Remember the end of Joshua? Choose you this day to serve the Lord. They're all like, we serve the Lord. That happened here. Do you think Abimelech picked that by accident? Heck no. So he's going to make this thing and make himself king in that spot. The terebinth tree, don't read over that. Quick history on the terebinth tree. It's the first place in the Bible that God gets worshipped by a free-souled person. So Abraham bends his knee to God in Genesis 12 at the terebinth tree by Shechem. So I'm thinking this is really a really old tree, which could happen, or there's a grove of trees here, and we just don't have a plural version of it, right? There's a little forest there, but it's not an accident. Genesis 33, Jacob is coming safe to Shechem, and he buys land here. It's the first piece of land that God's chosen people actually owned by law here at the terebinth tree of Shechem. Genesis 35, Jacob calls all of his people to put away their idols and they bury all their idols, which means under the ground at this spot, there are buried idols everywhere. Abimelech picks this location for a purpose. Deuteronomy 11, the law is here. Joshua 24, this is the spot they make a covenant with the people. Um, and, and I want to read you that covenant. It's, I think it's good to go back to Joshua. If you want to go back to Joshua 24, it's just one book back. This happens at the tree. And Abimelech knows this. He's been, he's been raised by Gideon. He's not absent of the... He's using this place because he's the next generation of what God's going to do in the kingdom. And he's elevated himself up, puffed himself up, and used the symbolism that God's given the Israelites to add legitimacy to his claim that he's serving God. So Joshua 24, and I'm going to start in verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and they made them a statute. They made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and he set up there, up there under the oak or the tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it's heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, which means he thinks stones can hear things. And it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God, Joshua 24, 24 through 27. So when it says at the pillar in, verse, in, our, chapter, in our chapter for verse 6, it says, beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem, that is an absolutely specific spot. It is one of the more holy spots that the Jewish people have at this point in history. 
So much has happened there. So if they're going to give their allegiance to Abimelech, this is the spot they gave their allegiance to God. They're shifting their covenants. And what kind of evil God would get you to shift covenants? The God of covenants, Baal Bareth. Because this covenant's a better covenant than the one God gave you. So they do it at the pillar, the same spot. Um, they make Abimelech a false king. They are following a fault with the worshipers of a false god. And they do it in front of the stone pillar that's bearing witness. And remember that witness is if you follow God, he'll bless you. And if you don't follow God, everything's going to go to crap. You remember that? And I'm paraphrasing. That's my language, not the Bible's. So those that reject God have a leader that rejects God's law, yet they're going to get the leader they made. And that's the way leadership works. You get the leaders you make. Nobody, if seriously, if next week we had Bible study, and I'm scared of this every week, I wake up with cold sweats. What if nobody shows? And Steph will be like, I'm, I'll be there, honey. And I'll be like, thank you. I'm so glad. If I showed up and I was by myself and Steph didn't even show up one week because it would be an empty room, you're not leading anybody through the word if nobody shows up. You make your leaders. You give them authority because you are there to follow them. And that's what these reckless, worthless people are doing. They're making a reckless and a worthless king. And they're propping up their worthless king who's going to do worthless stuff right in the middle of the book of Judges. So again, no accidents as to where this is at either. So verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. Gerizim's right on the mountain range over these these, this terebinth tree area. It looks right down on it. So he's up at the top of the hill. He lifts his voice. I'm thinking God gave him a good voice or this is miraculous. Like his voice just carried on the wind that day. Um, Jotham, by the way, if you want the Hebrew name for that, Jehovah is perfect. That's Jotham's name. That's Gideon's side of the family, right? On his mom's side of the family, my son's a king. On the dad's side of the family, it's Jehovah is perfect. So you got some family differences there. But he boldly stands up. We don't get a lot on Jotham other than that he's the little brother. That's it. So he does what a prophet does. God tells him to speak. So he lifts his voice and he cries out. Um, when that happens, in, if we know from Deuteronomy, when someone says they hear from God and they speak it out, the priesthood has an obligation to write that down and keep a record of it. So if it doesn't come true, they throw all those records away and that person's name is erased from the histories. But they keep the prophecies that actually keep coming true. So any prophet you see in the Bible has to be perfectly upheld through history even after their life is over. If they're caught lying or saying a false prophecy, in, in, Judea, in Mosaic law, they're supposed to be killed. So they're not left alive. So here's Jotham, little kid. Here's from God. He does what he's supposed to do. There should be priests that write it down. So you wonder if this story is actually captured from, not from Jotham and not from Abimelech, but from the priests that are unnamed in this part of the, the book. And Samuel found this story and put it in here because chronologically it fits in this spot. Mount Gerizim is the same place where they shouted out the blessings of God. Deuteronomy 11, Josh 8. All of the locations now are symbolic. Aren't you glad you've gone through the Bible you know, so you know these spots? Um, and then he said to them, listen to me, you men, again, Bali is the word, Baali, men of Baal, of Shechem, that you may listen to, that, that God may listen to you, 
these trees once went for, oh, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Does that make sense to you? That God may listen to you? Is, am I reading that right or is that a typo in my thing? Boy, I didn't look that up and I'm sorry, but that's a, a, a weird turn of phrase too. So that's your assignment for the week. Look up that verse, dig into it, see if there's something there. Um, but know the context. You've got a false king that went out and killed a bunch of people. Right? That's the context. So Jotham stands up and he's about to proclaim his prophecy that he heard from God from the top of a mountain and then he's going to go hide, but we'll get to that in a second. The trees once went forth amongst the king over them. So trees don't actually go forth. This is what's called a fable. It's not a parable. Parables are things that could plausibly be true. They don't require fits of fancy. There's only two fables in the entire Bible where they personify animals or plants. The story of Baalam is not, or, ba, or Balaam's donkey is not a fable. It's an actual historical account. But this is a fable, and it's meant to be one. The trees once went forth amongst to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go away and sway over trees? And then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cleanse my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over the trees? And then the tree said to the vine, could you come and reign over us? But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men? Should I stop making beer? And then to sway over the trees. And then all the trees said to the bramble, will you come reign over us? And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. That's a tough fable. Um, this is an entire chapter in the middle of Judges on how broken humanity is. And in the middle of that chapter, I like it, you get this shining beacon of hope and life and truth from the mouth of Jotham, from the top of Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain of blessings. Even though they're all broken, God has something to say to them. So God could just abandon this whole situation. He didn't call Abimelech. He didn't call the men of Shechem to do anything when it comes to leadership. But he doesn't. He warns them. Think of the grace that requires. Think of how loving it is to give your own enemies, people that just killed 70 sons, giving them the honor of a warning. But they get a warning. Okay, so let's break down the warning. <laughs> Olives, figs, and vines, the good ones, right? So this is a kingdom of trees, and they figure who could read, and they go to the three top trees they can think of. Oil is used in the worship in the tabernacle. We know that from Leviticus. So you've got the oil of the trees being the purpose of the olive trees. Why would they leave the worship of God to go do government when what the worship of God is so much more important? Why would the figs leave, and you got the idea of fruit or feeding people? The reason there is that we are food for people. Why would you stop people from making food, which is so much more important than rule, right? In the world sense, the rule is at the top and the farmer's at the bottom. In God's kingdom, the gardener's at the top and the rulers are at the bottom. Does this, you follow me on this? We're getting a real image into God's heart here. It's so much more important to provide for people in ministry, the fig tree, than it is to do anything else that the world wants us to do. Vines. The grapes, basically, for making people happy. Like, 
This idea of encouraging others or bringing joy to people, so much more important than ruling over people. And God brings this idea home in a fable that's so true at the same time that it's a fable. And you think only God can say things like that. It's, it's brilliant. Jotham could have been yelling from the top of the hill, God curse you, like Jonah wanted to do. He could have been doing that. You just killed 69 of my brothers. Curses on you. You guys are going to get yours. But God says, no, nah, say it this way. And this way, they, there's, there's that honor of a warning that's there. So basically, in this parable, people with good fruit in their life don't have a deep-seated need to rule or lead other people. If you're doing something fruitful, you don't need to control others. You just keep doing your fruitful things. And those people reject that, and they have a purpose and a calling that God's given them in their created being that they're content with. God made me to make oil, to make food, to make wine, and I'm happy with what God's made me able to do. This is what God does for me, and I'm happy to do it. Katie knows how to make coffee, and we're all happy that she does. What could be more important to us? By the way, I never got my coffee. Um, (laughs) All that was to set up. Katie, um, then you get to the brambles. Uh, Let's get to the brambles. We'll start with the concept of shade. Do brambles give shade? No, they don't. So the brambles lie right off the bat. They don't tell the truth. Brambles often are associated with thorns. You go into their quote-unquote shade, you're just going to get trapped by them. They're going to get you, and then they're going to get their thorns into you. Uh, so they make big promises, uh, but they don't, it doesn't work. And then at the end of the day, you either do what they want you to do, or you're going to get burnt by them. And this image of like, watch out for these kinds of leaders, and that's what Jotham's saying to these folks Evil leaders are the very first to promote themselves and they're the worst kind of leader you can pick for yourself. You don't want leaders that promote and advance their own agendas because they don't really have an agenda other than to pull you into their shade. And that's not an agenda at all. I hope you get that he's talking about Abimelech is a bramble-like leader and this is not a good guy to put in charge of things. Now therefore, verse 16... If you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, this is still Jotham talking, um, I, I think he's given him the benefit of the doubt, but he knows that they didn't make Abimelech king out of truth and sincerity because all of his brothers are dead. So this is, they're a little tongue-in-cheek. But if you have in truth acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech the king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as he deserves. What does he deserve? He freed them from the Midianites from the last chapter. But you have risen up against my father's house to this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he is Abimelech. Wait, because he is... I think I deleted something there. What comes after that? Because he is a relative. I just deleted a relative. Sorry about that. Abimelech uh, and Jerubbaal being used together like that is then becomes a play on words. So if in truth and sincerity you've made my son or my father is a king and you've dealt well with let Baal contend with him, uh, he's kind of playing those against each other, I think. Um, he says your brother, oh, there it is down at the end, because he's your brother. Uh, Gideon is in this sense, seeing the fruits of his sin coming back to destroy his house. And this is kind of how sin works. It seems really nifty at the outset. Oh, she's a good-looking servant girl. 
maybe I could just have a little tryst with her, but that tryst is coming back to kill the rest of his legacy. And you see how this image of sin that comes in and just wrecks people. So there's a false tr- premise here that he's using. And then don't miss that God has a plan in all of this. He's using Jotham. Verse 19, If then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Be happy you picked a great king because you did it in truth and sincerity. And let him rejoice in you. A good leader loves the people he works with or she works with right? An evil king or queen doesn't love the people they work with. They just want them to eat cake, right? They just, there's a hatred and a despising of the lower classes that they have to deal with and put up with. Verse 20, but if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. You guys are going to eat each other up. Like, that's what's going to happen. Because if this isn't truth and sincerity, if this isn't God telling you to do this, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences. So he's laid out a prophecy. And Jotham ran away and he fled, verse 21. And then he runs. I like this image. To me, I always see it like as a movie scene. He says this big, bold thing, and then he runs. And they can't catch up to him because he's on top of a mountain. So he's got a good head start, right? Um, but he ran away and fled, and he went to Be'er and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Again, Be'er is uh, a well. It is not an alcoholic beverage in college campuses. Um, he goes, and so he's not hiding in his drink. But this is kind of cool. Be'er's up in the hills. He goes to hide out at a little country town. And that's the end of Jotham's judgeship. Like, we've seen judges do some pretty cool things. Jossam's job was just to give a warning and then go hide. Because when you've got evil leaders presiding over you, get ready to do some hiding. In the Roman Empire in the first century, they hid in caves. They dug their own caves. They went down into the catacombs, right? They repurposed sewers to be homes, right? In the, the Maccabean revolt, the Jewish people literally dig, dug a network when they're Archaeologically, they're digging this up right now, so it's a really fun thing to track. Hundreds of underground houses underneath Jerusalem where they all hid during a time of evil evil leadership. Uh, If you look at Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, secret houses, secret rooms, buried caves, there's a really cool story in Slovakia of a guy who took off his priest robes because the communists took over, and In doing this, he had to lower himself to get any job he could find. Well, he finds a job as an elevator repair guy. Okay, he's just going to do that. And as an elevator repair guy, he learned the skills he needed to to dig elevator shafts. So underneath his house, he dug an elevator shaft. And then he created a secret door that went across to the other house, and he built a little room where he had a desk and a 1980s printer. And all he did in the evenings is he used that printer to create new copies of the Gospels so he could share them out with people. His Bibles got all over Slovakia before the end of communist reign, and he never got caught, even though his hands were filled with ink all the time. Why did he never get caught? Because he's an elevator operator. People thought it was grease. So he had the perfect cover with the perfect skills to get done what God called him to do in life. When there's evil leadership, get ready to hide. And when he does it, God just provides the way through it, and he got all the way through it. Right now they're trying to collect all these Bibles from all over Slovakia. 
that this guy printed and hand typed and got them through this printing press and, and whatnot. And in doing this, what they're finding, the coolest thing about these is they got red. These weren't Bibles collecting dust with nice shiny gold edging around their thing. These things are wore out. They got notes written all over them. But almost every one of these Bibles they've collected from this guy got used. It's a beautiful legacy, wonderful story. And I can't pronounce his name, sorry. Um, maybe Mike can pronounce his name. I don't know. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, so Jotham runs away and flees. Um, I think... It depends on which list you look at, but I think in this chapter, Jotham's the judge. He's the guy that got called by God to do something, not Abimelech, even though Abimelech tries to, even in secular listings of the judges, Abimelech still tries to get his name in there, but it's not, even if you boldface it or put an asterisk by it. If you read the chapter, he's not the guy that God's called out in this particular situation. So Jotham takes a stand, and then he goes to hide. His work is done. It's a good time midway through the judges, to get a good sense of the context again. And I, so I want to do this. Remember, we started with Joshua, and he was supposed to be strong and courageous. That means he probably had some fear, but he did it, and they took over a country, right? So you start with God kind of in reigning and in control, and then the, 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 then the angel of the Lord comes and directly talks uh, to Othniel. So God's way of dealing with his people was very direct. He would send messengers to talk to people. Othniel has a big thing. He defeats Edom. Just one judge is all it took to defeat Edom. For Moab, it took Ehud and Shamgar. It took two judges to beat Moab off. So that's a second enemy they got rid of. Then came the Canaanites, Deborah and Barak, because Barak doesn't get the credit. He lost the credit when he gave up doing God's will. Um, Jael got the glory for killing the... Canaanite leader, Deborah gets the glory for really being the judge that stood up and did the job, right? That's chapters four and five. And then you get Midian with Gideon. The Midian, it's too, too low-hanging fruit. Um, and then Gideon falls into sin, leads them into idol worship, blah, blah, blah. And now you've got a second judge, Jotham, that's still kind of dealing with the Midianites. These people that should have been taken care of back when Joshua gave the tribes the duty to do it. And they all vowed that they would do it. So here we are in this situation now where we're not just having one judge take care of a different group of people. We're actually having judges that aren't actually solving anything. They're just giving warnings to the Israelites that are totally self-destructing. The whole narrative is God's people... It's how God's people go from serving Jehovah to being under full attack from the world. And at this point, they don't even have godly leadership. They've got Abimelech, right? This is how far it's gone down the tubes for Israel. So, uh, and then, by the way, for the Ammonites coming up next, for the Midianites, it's going to take Tola and Jair. And then the Abonites, it's going to take six judges to take care of the Ammonites, right? So then none of them quite get it right. And then, of course, we end in the book of the Judges with the Philistines being the big enemy, and the Philistines don't really get beat up until David beats them up. So they're struggling through this season, and they're under full attack now, and God's people run and hide after they do God's work, and that's okay. There's nothing, there's, God never calls us to be idiots. He did not call Jotham to go down into the camp and proclaim his warning, because he loves Jotham. And he does call, sometimes people are called to martyrdom, but he also calls us to wisdom and to not be foolish with things. We're not looking for the conflict with people, but when God calls us to do something, we'll do it. 
And when that happens, we run to our fellowship in Bay Air, and we can all hang out together and sing songs and study the Word of God and pray together. That's what we do, because we're believers. So I think that Jotham had a pretty nice go of it here, because he's out of the rest of this mix. And I think God blesses him and just puts him out into a small town and he can hang out. Um, but God's going to use this rise of evil. God doesn't create evil, and that's an important point for the rest of the chapter. God doesn't do that. But God can allow evil in such a way to happen to where his mission's still going forward because he's that powerful. So he's not, he doesn't create Abimelech. Abimelech did that all on his own. But he's going to use this situation for them to send fire on each other. Back to the chapter, verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned, the word is sewer there. It's not, again, I love when the Hebrew people put little things in there. The word reigned there is not the proper Hebrew word for reigned. It's to play or act like a king. So he's, it's like an actor on a stage. So after Abimelech had play acted king for over Israel for three years, um, and by the way, none of the previous judges, when they ruled, do they use that word. They use the actual word for ruling when God calls a judge. But for Abimelech, it's fake ruling or acting. Then God sends a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So he got along with them for three years, and then all of a sudden, they're going to turn on him. God, in verse 23, is Elohim, or the impersonal use of the name. It's not Jehovah, which we've seen a lot of. It's not the capitalized L-O-R-D, because Jehovah, when used in the Old Testament, is used in blessing usually. And Elohim gets used when God has to allow some things to happen. And I don't know if you've noticed that trend or whatnot. Notice the progressive words for the rest of the chapter. Real quick, look at your chapter. Look at just the first words. Verse 22, 26, 28, 30. They're all progressive words. This led to this, led to this, and then this. So this, because then, this happened. So it's 22, 26, 28, 30, 34, 38, 29, 42, 44, I think that was 39, 46, 40, 40, 50, 52, 56. All of them are progressive statements. Like everything for the rest of the chapter is just going down a roller coaster hill. One thing leads to the other, and it just gets to be a disaster. So verse 24, uh, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. So verse 24 tells us why God's allowing this to happen. Verse 25, Then the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. So the first thing that happens is robbery. People start getting ripped off. That's not good if you're a pretend king of a nation, that there are real robberies happening in your pretend kingdom. Uh, this is a bad sign. It's the first sign that a nation's going into chaos is when people just start stealing from one another. So part one, his trade routes get hit. They're sabotaged. It's not a direct attack on Abimelech. He just hears about it. So this is a sign that this is kind of how the world operates sometimes. You just get the rumor mill coming at you. Then 26, now, it's a progressive word. Now Gaal which means loathing and hatred. So I don't know whose mom is naming their king loathing and hatred. That could just be a Hebrew name for this really nasty guy. Now the, or the spirit of loathing and hatred 
rose up, but they personify it if that's the case. Gaal, the son of Ebed, which means slave. In other words, this is just some nobody from nowhere. He's loathing and hatred coming from some slave, right? This isn't an important person. It's just a person. Came with his brothers and went over to Shechem and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry. So they made a bunch of wine and they got drunk. And they went into the house of their God, their God's Baal Bereth, and they ate and drank and they cursed Abimelech. So just imagine a bunch of drunk sailors sitting around at the tavern saying, this Abimelech's no good. And they're just kind of cursing him and shouting at him and saying, they're not saying long live the king or anything like that. So they steal, they gloat, and now they're cursing Abimelech. They're saying nasty things about him. But again, it's not a direct attack because they're saying nasty things about Abimelech behind his back. And he, of course, is going to hear about that. Um, then, verse 28, Gaal, the son of Abed, said, Who's Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Wait, why are we serving this guy named Abimelech? Is he not the son of Zerubbaal? Is he not Zebul? Is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? All right, so him saying, We're your brothers and we're all connected, that just went out the window. They're not his brothers. They're the son of Jerubbaal. Let Baal contend with him. So they're saying, isn't this guy we're following the son of a guy who is against our gods? Isn't this guy a Christian? Why would we want to deal with a follower of God? But Abimelech's clearly not a follower of God. He's doing everything the opposite of it. But even his association is going to be hated by the men of Shechem. So they go after him. Verse 29. If only this people were under my authority, we got another false king, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Um, <clears throat> the point is here is that Abimelech's not one of them, like they said. He thought he was on good terms making this contract with them, but the world doesn't make contracts with people that serve an almighty God. And it, that contract doesn't last. It falls apart instantly. The men of Hamor here is not the, the men of Shechem. Same word, men of, in the English. But here it just means actual men. You'll notice if you look up the Hebrew, it's a different word than when we were referring to the servants of Baal. Now they point out that he's not one of them. He's actually Israel. And they reference history. When they talk about Hamor, the Shechem, the son of Hamor, <clears throat> Hamor's the Hivite. He's the guy who raped Dinah. You remember that story? So they're like, we're the men, we're the guys who raped Dinah. I mean, they're referring to their history. They know their history. They know where they stand. They're against the people of God, and they're re they're re-glorifying that past. They're rewriting history and saying, no, we're gonna identify with this versus with that. So they're making a clear spiritual choice, and that reference to Hamor should bring that up. So part three is overt defiance, verbal hatred. They're coming at him. Now there's a direct call to conflict. We're going to go at this guy. We're going to do it together. And they're taunting him. And then in verse 30, it says, when Zebul, which means exalted in the Hebrew, the ruler of the city heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. So Zebul is the, uh, the city governor of Shechem, right? The one Abimelech puts in place. And he sends messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, take note, Gaal the son of Abed and his brothers have come to Shechem and they're here fortifying the city against you. There, there's a rebellion. 
Now therefore get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field, and it shall be as soon as the sun's up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him will come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. This is not God leading his people, but I hope you can see this is just weird and chaotic. So verse 34 starts with another progressive word. So Abimelech, he's just reacting to things. He's not leading based on God's word. He's just reacting. He's got a rebellion. He's going to go put down the rebellion. This is what happens. And all the people who were with him rose by night, and they lay in wait against Shechem and four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebel, uh, Look, I think there's people coming down from the tops of the mountains. And Zebul says to him, nah, you just see shadows of mountains as if there were men. I love this scene. He said, that's not really, you're just seeing things. It's early in the morning. So, uh, but Zebul said, you're seeing shadows of the mountains as if there were men. So Zebul sets it up so Abimelech's men can get closer to the city. So Gaul spoke again and said, those are people coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming from the diviners or the terebinth trees. So he's like, no, I think I actually see people coming in here. So Zebul helps Abimelech out from inside the city. Verse 38, then, then Zebul says to him, well, where's your mouth now? With which you said, who's Abimelech that we should serve him? Aren't these not the people you despise? Go out if you want to and fight them right now. He calls him out on his bravado that he had in the taverns. Well, go you you're a big tough guy. You said you could fight. It's time to fight. You got to fight on your hands. So I think Zebul can't resist rubbing it in because he's not a man of God either. So he amplifies the situation. Verse 39, So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and they fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and fled from him. And he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So Abimelech wins, wins, and so what does that do? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't, there's no idols being torn down. Nothing's happening that's good. Uh, so we'd think now that it's over, there'll be peace, right? Gaal's little rebellion is done, and it's peaceful. But that's not the case, because verse 42 starts with the word and. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took... His people divided them into three companies, lay in wait in the field, and he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. This is vicious. So there's no threat here. There's no dumb people. They already got beat. Abimelech's just being vengeful. And he's just saying they're going to do that. The word people there in the Hebrew is am. It's conflated. It's the same words getting used on both sides. It's basically the people are fighting the people. Do you see that in verse 43 and verse 42? There's two groups of people on the same side, but the same words getting used for both of them. They're just fighting each other. So another indicator of evil leadership is that you're going to get factions fighting each other within the same house. right? This is like the Yorks and the uh, Lancasters in England, two, three hundred years for the War of the Roses, just killing each other because there's factions and they want to, each one wants to be in charge. So hundreds of people get killed here that aren't needed to be killed. It's the first time we've really seen this kind of wholesale slaughter um, where they're, they're just killing innocents. When they go out to the fields, it's implied there that they're going out to do their job. 
They're thinking the battle's over, so they go out to tend their crops. They're going out to do work. And Abimelech takes them out in the middle of that work effort. So then they sow it with salt. So then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the city gate. And the other two companies rushed all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city all that day in place. He's going house to house, just pulling people out and killing them. This is just brutal. And then he took the city and killed the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and he sowed it with salt. So to sow it with salt is to kill the soil. You can't even grow grass if you get your dirt salinated. Uh, we had projects at home this week. We're trying to revive soil. And so we were buying fall grass seed and trying to aerate the soil and get it. Once soil's dead, it's hard to bring it back, but you can do it. Uh, Shechem's going to be dead for 200 years. So Abimelech is destroying what was one of the great Israelite cities here. It's just wrecking it. And, and, and when it does come back 200 years later, um, well, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, now when all the men of the tower, we'll get to that in 200 years. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of God, the God Bareth. So they're going into covenant. So at this point, they're running not to the shelter of Yahweh, they're running to the shelter of Bereth when they do it. So it's likely um, that the people doing this, the last people to survive, are the temple priests. So Abimelech's killing average citizens before he goes after these false priests. So they hide behind the God of covenants, which is a false covenant, because when needed, this God of covenants doesn't protect them a bit. right? And that's the way with false gods. You can worship those things your whole life, but when you actually need them, they don't produce anything for you. So if you're a fan of Brad Pitt, when your time of need comes, I guarantee he won't show up and help you out, right? It just won't happen. That was for the ladies. Guys, take anyone that you might put in that spot from your favorite movie, your favorite female actress. For me, that's like, I'm going back to breakfast at Tiffany's because I just don't watch a lot of movies. But anyways, note here... What's that? She did? All right. Well, that doesn't work anymore. So Abimelech kills the braggers, and then he kills the civilians, then he kills the land. Now he's killing the priests of Bereth. And that's just the opposite of what we see happening in other situations. So here's the last of these people, these last holdouts for Bereth. They go to his temple. And then in verse 47, it was told to Abimelech that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up, uh, went, uh, went up to Mount Zalman, and he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a bough from, from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder, and then he said to the people who were with him, what you've seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So as any good leader, like, follow me, do what I'm doing, uh, look at what I'm doing and do the same. Um, but if he's going out to that grove and cutting down trees, that's a pretty significant place that he's just chopping up. Right? It's like the orcs going after the forest. So, so each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech and they put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them and all the people of the tower of Shechem died. That's a gentle way of saying what happens to people when they bake in an oven, a giant tower-sized oven. And all about a thousand men and women. They make a point here that these are, these are people that Abimelech's going after. He's not going after soldiers anymore. He's going after men and women. The strategy here for Abimelech isn't to win a war. 
It's to win absolute and total control. And if he can't have it, the fire is going to go out from the brambles and consume them all. It's a kill them all strategy. And we see this throughout history, and it's ugly when this happens. A scorched earth policy might be how you, where we get this. The salt is on the ground. The fire is in the tower. Leave nothing alive. It is exactly what Jotham predicted would happen back in verse 19 and 20. That Abimelech goes after, they go after him, he goes after them, everybody's dead. So, you could, I've seen one commentator saying, but Abimelech was being really wise here by trapping him in the tower and burning him to death. And I just, I don't even know if I want to keep reading that commentator. That's such a bad interpretation of this. This isn't wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. And God didn't tell Abimelech to have rage and hate after the battle was over to just wantonly destroy and kill people. So God provides a much better tower for us to run to. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they're actually safe, Proverbs 18.10. For if you've been a shelter for me, a strong tower for my enemy, Psalm 61.3. When we run to our tower, we're actually saved. When the Barathians run to their tower, they're not saved at all. And that might be one thing you could take from this, but verse 50, then, it starts with the word then, everything just happens one after the other. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes, and he took it. Wait, where did Thebes come from? Now he's just on a rage fest, right? He got a little taste of blood, and this guy's the Mongolian hordes, right? He's just going to go and start slaughtering people. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women, all the people of the city fled there, and they shut themselves in. This is a different kind of tower. And they went up to the top of the tower. So now he's attacking this neighboring town, because here's the thing. Once evil starts winning attacks... It just keeps coming. It isn't going to get better. It isn't going to get fixed. They're going to get bolder and more brazen about what they do. But in that, God's got the, God's got the turning point. Because once they overextend, God can change that. So those willing, like Abimelech, to step on other people to get to power, they're going to keep stepping on people to keep their power. It's just their character. So here we've got a killer who's being a killer. This shouldn't surprise us at all. It's the nature of this guy. So the people flee and they hide. They clearly don't want conflict. These are people that aren't rebelling against Abimelech. They're not forming an army. And this is what happens then. Verse 52, so Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, which to me, again, the image comes up of a guy just hitting a stone wall, fighting against it. But I'm sure fighting against it meant more of a strategic approach. But there's the comedian aspect of that. And he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So he's got the same plan he did last time. Let's burn this sucker. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man. So apparently the stone didn't kill him right away. Um, his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword and kill me lest anyone says a woman killed him. Which I, it's, no small amount of irony that that's what gets written in the book that lasts for another 3,000 years. Um, so his young man thrust him through and he died. Um, what are the things a person should be considering right before they die? If you get hit in the head with a millstone, we'll come back to the millstone, but if you get whacked in the head with a millstone, what should be the thing going through your head? Maybe, am I right with God? And... Oh, please tell my wife I'm sorry I left the seat up. 
You know, there should be things going through your head about the people you love and the people you care about and the things you want to do, but this empty, vain, worthless, reckless man, there's nothing in his head but, oh, I want to be remembered a certain way. Give me a break, right? I don't want, I don't want people to think a woman got me. What a stupid thing to think. And there's nothing here that implies that that's anything but a ridiculous, stupid sentiment by this guy. Um, so he doesn't have a rock of solid faith. He doesn't. There's been no indication that he serves the king. And in that light, the world's going to rock him. And I'm, yes, I'm using the pun there. I'm going there. Um, he make, there's small demands, and then the world demands big things of him. Right? At first it starts with just killing his brother. Now he's trying to kill whole cities. And he does it. Or the other option is you can have Christ the solid rock on which you stand. And when you stand on Christ the solid rock, nothing rocks you. You're solid because you've been there. So you got this guy. We'll go back to the upper millstone. Um, by the way, the idea that the women gets the credit. If you go to 2 Samuel eleven twenty one, that's how they tell the story. <laughs> and he got killed by a woman. And that, so it doesn't work. His little effort to, to fake out the historians doesn't happen. The upper millstone in the Hebrew is, this is interest, Rekeb is the upper millstone. It means a chariot wagon. So it gives, just to give us a little image of what's going on, there's a huge tower and a rock falls on him. So one question is, how big is the rock? And the word Rekeb gives us some hint as to what that, how big the rock was. It has to be small enough for your average, maybe even strong woman, to pick it up and throw it over a wall, right? Or the chariot wagon, this upper millstone fell on his head. It's not the actual rakab that fell on him, but at the top of the, the tower, some think that there would have been a giant metal pole and an opening in which you had a bucket of metal that you filled up, a chariot wagon, a rakab. And when you filled it up with stones, you could just tip it and anyone, even a 12-year-old, would have the muscles to tip that over, and it would create a shower of rocks on someone's head. And where would you put that? You'd put it right over the door where this guy's standing. So she would have been the one tipping this up, and they would have been filling it up with rocks. Um, other people believe it's, if it was actually a rakab that fell, or she took like a wheelbarrow and dumped it over and dumped the wheelbarrow on them, it would be some sort of container for stones. Uh, and it says on verse 5, or in, in, in the... It says here that there was, I'm sorry, what verse is that? 53. 53. It says a singular upper millstone, not a shower of rocks. So that would indicate that maybe she pushed the whole bucket onto his head or the whole rakab got tossed over. Um, either case, that would be about an 18-pound bucket that fell on him because these were big stone-carrying buckets. If they were building the tower, they would have these all over while they were building the tower because they'd use them like sleds to get things there. So she would just lift up the 18 pounds and throw it over on top of him. It nails him just right. Verse 5, he kills his dead brothers on one stone, and there's a point that one stone is what he used to kill all those people. And at this point in the chapter, it's one stone that kills him, and it's made as a point that it was a stone that killed him or got him. Either way, he got knocked with a stone in the head, He's bleeding, there's gore, there's gushy things, a big dent. Uh, they finally got through his head. Um, and, uh, and when every man saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed, every man back to his place. Adventure over. The whole thing is done. There's no 
legacy. There's nothing. Everybody just goes home. It's a very uh, unstartling ending. And verse 56 starts with the word thus. Thus, this is the story of how this all happened. Thus, God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing the 70 brothers. That's how God worked. All right? So this is one of those weird things, because this is a theological thing. Did God make all this bad stuff happen? Or did God use the nature of a fallen humanity to allow things to happen that were within the paradigms of his will? And this is a tricky passage, which made me think, like, as we get to tricky passages in Judges, I'm so glad we've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, where things are crystal clear and laid out. Because God wants us to learn the clarity before we learn the confusion. And we're able to see the confusion because we know Deuteronomy. We are able to see what good worship should look like because we've read Leviticus. And it's intentional how God set up his word. So when we get to these passages that are a little more tricky, we already know God's will and his plan for our lives. So we know that this is something that, is, that God has allowed to happen because he's got a larger plan. And that's that the Israelites are going to continue to be Israelites. Verse 57, And all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads, and on them the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So in verse 57, we get a hint. God allows their evil to destroy them. And he allows this group of evil people to wreck this group of evil people and those evil people. And what's left is Jotham up in beer hanging out with his friends. That's what's like God's people are hanging out. And God's doing all this stuff and dealing with all this evil um, without necessarily putting his people in danger because that's just what evil does. Thus, this is how God did it all. What are we supposed to learn from this? I think the, the word thus tells us what we're supposed to get from this chapter. We're supposed to understand that God works this way sometimes, that we don't have to be in the middle of the fight like all the rest of these judges have gotten in there and done it. Sometimes God tells his people to just stay underground. And God will take care of the Romans, and God will take care of the communists, and God will take care of the Nazis. And he tells the people that are in the middle of that what to do. And he tells these people to do this, and these people to do this. God's thinking at a level that's global. And at the end of that, we need to understand that our God's a big and a very powerful God, that he can even use these kinds of tragedies to stay within that, on the tracks of his will. That's a tough concept to embrace. And to understand. And I don't, I can't say I fully understand it. Like that's tough for me too, which is why I'm even bringing it up. Does God repay the wicked? The purpose of all this thus is that wickedness gets repaid. We should know that about the nature of God. Evil doesn't get left untaken care of because that's not a just and a good God. A good God doesn't leave evil to just be evil. And that's encouraging when we go through times that are struggling. God never lets it go. If you've been wronged by a person, God will make that right. And you might not be alive to see it, like you might be watching it from heaven, but you will watch it be made right. If you've been lied about, if you've been betrayed, if you've been left and abandoned, God will make that right too, because that's the God who we serve. And wickedness will be taken care of, either now or later. And in this case, Abimelech reigned for three years. That's three years of thinking, wow, this killer is our king? So Abimelech is not the one called for in this chapter. I think Jotham is. And that's part of what we can learn from this chapter as we go back into judges that are a little more active in their judging. Uh, 
lesson, two lessons, I'll end with just two thoughts. Sorry if it's too much commentary, but two takeaways from this chapter, because I've been wrestling this all week. You can ask Steph, I was like, what do you do with this chapter? I was getting ready to call some people and be like, can you read this chapter and tell me what you think? What do you do with a chapter where there's no hero other than maybe Jotham who runs and hides? Well, first is maybe the word of God wants us to know something about God and that God can work whether or not we're involved. And one thought about this is that uh, I was thinking of when Jesus was coming up into the Temple Mount and the Pharisees came out and started yelling at him, going, why are you letting these people worship you as a king? What are you doing? And they're probably reacting to Abimelech calling himself a king, right? And the Pharisees are taking that story and they're attacking Jesus. Why are you allowing yourself to be worshipped? And remember Jesus' response to that? If these people weren't worshipping me, the rocks would cry out. And think of the role of rocks in this chapter, which is why I think, okay, maybe that's what was going on there. So he's referencing these rocks, the rock that was a witness to all of this that was there. God made rocks and he made us. And I think from the almighty God's perspective, there is very little difference between us. And if God's will is that his son would be praised when he came into Jerusalem, then it's no idle threat to say these rocks would do the praising. And it would be a bunch of little singing rocks and it'd be a whole cartoon series. Um, but I think God can get anyone to do his will if he has ordained it that it has been determined that that will happen. And I think in this case, we see that even though there's no judge, God's will is going to happen. It's certain. And, it, and when he speaks, it is truth because of the nature of who God is and the power that God has, which we can't even fathom, right? We're just, we're just little pieces of dust trying to consider an almighty God. And we are, we're holy in his hands so when we see the horrors of this world, we get a little glimpse of how small those things are to an almighty God. They're nothing to him. They'll burn each other up. I, I like the idea that they were warned. <laughs> and if you walk away with anything, even in the depths of our sin, God will send messengers to us to warn us. And if you're in this room right now, at some point, you said yes to God because you don't study Bible on a Sunday night unless you're trying to follow God. And God adores you for that. He has called you out of the mire for that. And he's going to work with you because you heard his warning. And everyone that we think is unsavable out there, you have to know in faith they've had warnings too. And maybe you're one of their warnings. You're one of the people like Jotham to just say, God's calling you. And he's calling you out to repentance. So this idea of obedience to God being a life-cherishing culture where God gives warnings not because he hates people but because he loves even the evil people because they're people and he created them. So he's giving warnings to these very, very evil people. And if he can give warnings to them and show grace to them, it shows the nature of God as an all-loving God. He even loves his enemies, which is exactly what Jesus told us to do. We have to love our enemies. And I'm still working on that. That's such an amazing thing. What warnings does God give to us in our life as we try to seek him and he tries to redirect us? What warnings have we heard and which ones are we skipping? Because we're not listening. So a whole group of people just missed it. Lesson number two. Just a thought for this chapter. Earlier through, throughout Judges, we often see these phrases, the children of Israel. And in my head, I conflate that with the children of God. I don't know if you do that too. In the Old Testament, they use the term the children of Israel, but that's not God's ultimate goal. 
If you go back to Adam and Eve, God's ultimate goal is that all of humanity comes to serve him and that we all become children of God. At this point in history, he's working with Israel because he's trying to build these stories for us so that we see Jesus when he shows up. Like there's a center point to history, which is Jesus. And all of this leads to that. And in the Old Testament, we see this reference to the children of Israel, including this chapter. But the grand plan here is for God not just to work with the children of Israel, but to buy back all of humanity as children of God. That's his plan. And all of this is trying to go towards that. So God gives Israel every chance to serve, but they keep following after the world. And in the same way, the whole world is following after themselves. We are not called to be children of Gibeon. Notice the relationship in this chapter of you're a child of Gideon or you're a child of Gideon's mom or you're a child of this and at the children of Israel react in a certain way, but we're not called to be children of Israel and we're not called to be children of Gideon or Jacob or Abraham or any of that. We're actually called to be children of God. So I just want to end tonight with a few references because the first time the phrase children of God gets used in the Bible as a phrase is in Matthew. It's not a concept that's really in the Old Testament. When God opens up and says, now I've created redemption for the whole world, suddenly the nature of the family, the nation changes when we get to the Old Testament. Let me read you these four references. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's in the Sermon on the Mount, and he just throws out this phrase. For they shall be called the children of God. And then you put that with a chapter like this. There's no peacemakers in this chapter. Even Jotham, he's not making peace. He's getting out of there. These are war makers. And he's saying, blessed are the people that are not this. So not a good chapter for role models. Luke 20, verse 36. Neither can they die anymore, for they're equal to the angels and are children of God being the children of the resurrection. When Christ died and took our sins, he also took us on as his children. And he allows us to use his sacrifice to be part of his whole family. And we then have eternal life, peacemakers, John eleven fifty two, And not for the nation only, but that he should also gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. So it's very clearly said God's goal isn't just to save Israel. It's to save everybody. And then last but not least, Romans eight sixteen. Paul had to get in on this with the gospel writers. The spirit itself beneath the witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The way we know we're God's children or not is if we are working in concert with the Holy Spirit. We've died to ourselves, we've given our life to God, and we make that sacred. No one touches that we serve God, we love one another, we study his word, we pray together, we worship together. Super, super clear. A child can understand that. And that's what we're called to do. So we have way more promises from God than the Israelites ever did. We got a whole Bible. I should have one that I could just hold up. Not that I actually read from it, but I should be able to hold it up and wave it. We have the whole Bible full of God's promises. Israelites had, you know, the Torah. That's pretty much it. So we have way more of the promises. We have so much more revealed through Christ Jesus that we know God's plan. We know what he's doing. Yet, and we have so many more people on the planet, right? Are we, have we hit a trillion yet? Two trillion, four trillion? Percentage-wise, yeah, it's about the same. There's X number of people that choose to follow the Lord. 
and there's people that choose not to follow the Lord, and that's the game. Our goal is to bring as many people into the family as we can, but the choice hasn't changed from Judges chapter 9 or whichever chapter we're on. I'm really off on my numbers tonight, aren't I? <laughs> Judges chapter 9. The, the choice hasn't changed one bit since this time. Choose you this day who you will serve, and then serve him. Don't just admire Jesus, follow Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Actually, tonight, if you could, because I read this awesome book, can we stand and pray together? I won't pray for cigarettes. I'll tell you the story afterwards. Dear Lord and King, we stand before you tonight because we adore you and we regard you, Lord, as our Lord and King. There is no other God of covenants beside the covenant you offer to us. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's backslidden, ashamed of sin, or fallen away, Lord, bring them back right now. Uh, Lord, help them to be ruled by you directly um, and to uh, give their life back over to you, Lord. May they confess their sins before you and may they make it right and move forward in clarity and purity. Lord, we ask for your grace in our lives. There's people in the room tonight that have some medical things going on. We pray for healing with that. May you just bring their physical health back in line uh, so that they can be joyful and not be thinking constantly about their body. Uh, Lord, may they glorify you with that, Lord. And we ask for that. If it's your will, make it happen today, tonight. Uh, Lord, we ask you to help us to get the work done that you've put before us and to do it with joy. Uh, that if we're to make oil or figs or wine, Lord, whatever our job is tomorrow morning, help us to do it with just joy and contentment that you've put that work in front of us to provide for ourselves and that that alone is a blessing. Lord, help us to not be discouraged by people that fail in the Bible, but to be encouraged that you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide us and your son uh, to come in person and sacrifice for us. Thank you for those things. Bless the folks in this room. Anoint them with your word and your way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.